All right. I ask everybody to kind of go and find their seats real quick, and we'll get started here on this uh, last lesson of uh, social justice. If you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse tw- starting in verse 24, that's where we're going to start this morning. Um, this last lesson is um, an attempt, and this is going to feel a little bit like a fire hydrant today, okay? This is an attempt to establish a positive case against social justice. We've spent 14 weeks and 12 in the book. We spent 12 essential weeks in the book discrediting social justice, talking about what it is, why it's false. Um, Today, I want to finish by making a positive case for how Christians can live against social justice by honoring Christ with their lives. And how we're going to look at that is we're going to look at that. I didn't count up exactly how many verses of Scripture I have cited today, but if you're a note taker, please realize that this uh, particular message is recorded and you should have the opportunity to go back and listen to it. So there are going to be a ton of Scriptures today a ton of scriptures today that I'm going to refer to, okay? Because we're going we're gonna to cover, uh, just rehash very quickly a couple things that we have covered over the last month, which have to do with individual responsibility, self-government, and piety toward the Lord. Then we're going to talk about men's and women's roles and what that looks like in marriage and in relation to children. Then we're going to talk about what the church itself is responsible for primarily, And then we're going to talk about how that shapes and transforms the culture. So we have a lot to cover. So I'd ask you now just to bow your heads with me in prayer, and then we're going to open up by reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to finish a lesson, um, finish with a lesson, Lord, that reflects on your word and on how sufficient it is for us. I pray that we would be blessed today by thinking about your word, that um, as we seek to look at the scriptures for a positive case of what it means to be obedient to you, to live according to your word, I pray that we would be blessed by that, that we would be open to correction where we need correction, Lord, and that we would be uh, desirous to love you by our actions and our thoughts and our emotions. Uh, I pray that we would surrender our whole self to you and uh, that you would just bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Now, I would ask, generally, I'm like, have any questions? We have so much material to cover, so many verses we're going to read, that I would prefer, if you can, and if it's super pressing and you're very confused, please ask, but if you can, please catch me after this. Okay, just because there's so much that I want to get through here. I have about five pages of notes, and I normally have one page of notes. So, granted, I read some of the book normally, but that's still going to be quite a bit for those of you who have ever sat in a class with me. Five pages of notes is a lot. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the flood came, floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone 
who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. As one having authority, not as the scribes. So notice a contrast here. What's, what are the two types of people that we are talking about in this passage? What are, the, what are the two? There's a contrast here between one person who does this and one person who does this. What are those two things? What's the first person do, in verse, starting in verse 24? They hear and they do, and, the, and what? They hear and do the words of Christ, right? They hear and do the words of Christ. In, other tra- in my translation, the New King James says, therefore, whoever. That's an all-encompassing term. It means everyone. Everyone who hears the words of mine and does them. And, of course, we would qualify that as a person who's regenerated in Christ. That gives us the ability, right, to follow Christ's commands. Um, everyone who does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. What's the contrast? What's the other person like? What do they do or not do? They hear the word, but they do not do it. This is in James, if you're familiar with the book of James, he says, be not merely hearers of the word, but be also doers of the word, right? And he says we are actually justified in terms of our outward appearance as a Christian, not in front of God, because we can never earn our salvation. But he says we are justified by our works in front of others. This is how we know that we are Christians, that we produce good fruit. This is one of the means by which we can tell that God has regenerated us and others. Is a good tree bears forth good fruit, and a bad tree bears forth bad fruit. And this is the contrast that we have here. So, what ultimately is Christ talking about here? What distinguishes? It's those who hear and do his word, right? Remember, we we started out these lessons by talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means it's sufficient for everything for which it speaks. It says this in the Westminster Confession, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of church that are common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general word, rules of the word which are always to be observed. So the second part of that is referring to the worship of God. And by common to all societies, it means that these are things or circumstances that surround worship that, ne- that are necessarily, necessarily have to be lined out and for it to happen. In other words, a church service would not be held at 3 a.m. 
it would be held at a time when other people, when all people could hopefully gather together, such as what we do at like 10.30 a.m. That's a circumstance, okay? So that's what it's describing, but we'll get to that again later. A firm grasp of the sufficiency of Scripture to address all areas of life as expressed through believing Christians is the only means of cultural change. This is kind of the thesis of this whole lesson. Through the grace of the Holy Spirit as he applies the power of Jesus' sinless life, death, and resurrection to the hearts of men. We have already discussed some of how this applies, if the sufficiency of Scripture is a true doctrine, which it is, then we should seek to understand it. And, and in order to understand it, we actually have to regularly read the Bible, right? We actually have to regularly read the Bible. And if you remember a few weeks back, I covered the idea of individual piety. And I gave you three things, okay? I'm not going to go back over those three things because we covered it, but it was regularly reading your Bible, regularly praying, and regular observance of the Lord's Day and coming into fellowship with other believers. I gave you those a few weeks back. I'm going to assume that most of us remember that or that's a pretty familiar idea because of our church and the way that we look at things here, okay? Now, family piety. If you remember, this is the next uh, part of the lesson. Family piety. We covered the idea of men and women and how they were created in different ways. You guys remember what that was? How was Adam created? distinctly from the woman. He was created how? Of the dust, right? Of the dust. That correlates with his mission, right? What, what did God commission Adam to do in the world? To work the garden and tend to it. You guys remember that? Okay, to work with his hands, to provide, to till the ground, to to go after those sorts of things. That's how he would fulfill the commission that God had given to him, the cultural mandate. What, how was the woman created? From the man. That correlates with her mission, right? To be fruitful and bear children, to be a helpmate to Adam, right? That also correlates with both of their curses. How was Adam cursed? Adam was cursed according to his cultural man, part of the cultural mandate. By thorns and thistles, by the sweat of your brow, right? You will do what? Gain the labor of your hands. You will have the fruit of your hands. How was the woman cursed? Attempting to usurp her. She would have a desire to rule over her husband, okay, which was not the created order. And she would have pain in childbirth. Her curses were relational because she was created as a relational being. You guys remember that stuff? We kind of went over that a little bit. Okay, so now we're going to get into men's and women's roles a little bit. Men's and women's roles. How does that... Remember, all of this is meant to be a positive case of how we as Christians can live against the tide that social justice is creating. Okay? I'm not up here today to condemn you. I'm up here today to encourage you that as you live this way... Your obedience to God has an actual effect on our culture. As you live this way, your obedience to God has an actual effect on our culture. So men, therefore, are to remove themselves from their typical sins of anger or passivity, i.e. laziness, and sexual lust, and are to live according to what God has called them to live. Okay? 
So we're going to remove ourselves and get and remove out of our lives those things which are disobedient to God and those typical sins of men, and we're going to cover women and stuff here in just a minute too, those typical sins of men, if you think about the way that the Bible frames things, are, ang- are anger or laziness and passivity on the two ends of the spectrum and sexual lust, which actually um, Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, uh, which is part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is what we just read from, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, right? So those are the things that we want to think about. Now, what is the positive case for what men are supposed to do, or how are they supposed to live in their marriage? Okay, it says Deuteronomy chapter 6. This might seem like an odd place, but men are supposed to be material providers and spiritual providers, and it's in the reverse order from that. Men are supposed to be spiritual providers or leaders and material providers and leaders. How do we see that? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, and you and your sons and your son's son. How will we do that? By keeping all his statues and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly. You hear the, the uh, cultural mandate tied into that? That you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen, this is, this is the spiritual provision that God explicitly gives to men. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." We see this throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapter 18, God says that he entrusts Abraham in his covenant. Why? Because he knows that he will be faithful to teach his children about the Lord. We see this in the book of Job. Job gets up early, and what does he do? He makes sacrifices on the behalf of his sons and daughters. Okay, He makes sacrifices. He acts as a priest in his household. All men are called to do this. Oh, this is just an Old Testament thing. Well, no, not quite. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says this, and I told you this is going to be a little bit of a fire hydrant today, but this is the positive case for what it means to live a Christian life that stands against the cultural tide, right? They are against the nuclear family. They are against everything it has to, has to do with a masculine approach to anything. In order for us to live in a way that stems the cultural tide, that is a light unto this nation, we have to live in obedience to God. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, 1-4. through 4, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Notice that that promise that was an Old Testament promise is carried forward into the New Testament for children who honor their father and mother and keep the fifth commandment. What does it go on to say? That it may go well with you in the land, and then it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
What do you guys think it means to both discipline and instruct your children? Well, the word there, specifically the word discipline, is the word padea. Paideia. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. I think that's close. It says, this is one of the definitions given for paideia. Remember what we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? When you rise up, when you lie down, all the time you are responsible for the education of your children in the Word. It says the whole training, this is the defini- definition of that word discipline in chapter 6 verse 4 of Ephesians. It says the whole training and education of children, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals. And employs for this purpose, I'm sorry, and employs for this purpose now commands the admonitions, now reproof and punishment. It also includes the training and the care of the body. The cultivation of the entire life is to be led by men in their families. Okay? Specifically given, contrast to that. Why is it given? Or what could you expect from that? Well, I'm going to read off a bunch of verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Why would you do this? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. I'm just trying to encourage you here to think through this. What does God promise? What does God promise? Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 13.24, this is the strongest worded one. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We see here that God gives us directions for the purpose of raising up offspring for himself. If you guys remember Malachi Chapter 2, verses 13 through 16 that we read as far as the cultural great commission. I'm sorry, the cultural mandate, I should say. I'm sorry. The cultural mandate. It says, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Why does he do this? And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This is talking about divorce. And that's not saying that there can't be forgiveness for divorce, okay, or anything like that. He's just saying this is why divorce causes destruction. And he's describing that sort of destruction. It says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Now that doesn't mean, reading any of these does not mean that God is a vending machine and that if we obey all of these rules and put in our quarters of of so-called faithfulness that he is obligated to spit out a believing child. That is not how it works, okay? But as a general rule, we can hold on to these promises and believe them and they should spur us on to faithfulness in the raising of our children. Does that make sense? They should spur us on to faithfulness in the raising of our children. 
Ultimately, election is in God's hands, but that does not mean that he does not make promises to parents that we can hold on to and live by. Okay, material possession, material, remember, material provision, I should say. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Lord commands men to work, right? That doesn't mean that he does Remember, through Christ, the curses are undone. By our faith in Him, through obedience to the Spirit in Him, we can pursue and work and provide for our family as He has made us able. And as we shrink from that, as we are lazy toward that to materially provide for our families, we cannot expect God to bless those things. So God calls us to both work in our families spiritually as men and work in our families materially as men and provide for our households. Right? Makes sense, yes? Okay, women. So I, I, I mentioned that the sins of men were what? Anger or laziness and passivity. So we go from one extreme to the other. And sexual lust. Well, women, the sins that, they are, tip, that are typically mentioned of them in the scriptures are what? Lack of submission. And this is relational lust is what I would call this. Lack of submission and gossip. And then on the other side of that, materially speaking, quote unquote, the neglect of household duties. This is clear from the scriptures. Okay, so how do we live positively to that? How do we live positively to that? Let me just read a couple passages of scripture so you don't think that I'm pulling this out of the air. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Remember, I said we're going to kind of stand in front of a little bit of a fire hydrant today. We're going to go quick because I want to make this positive case. Older women... Titus 2, 3-5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much line. They are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Notice these are, these are both epistles to pastors, Okay? Titus and Timothy. He's teaching them how to encourage their congregation to faithfulness in that way. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. Let a widow, and it's primarily talking about widows, but let's get to young, it'll get to younger women in here and how they are to live and what obedience looks like for them. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints. Notice how these things center around service, okay? Has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur the condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger women marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Proverbs. Now, what does managing the household look like? There's a command there, and I would submit to you that 
a full-time career for a woman that has children will not allow you to fulfill your duties in managing the household. It just won't. You cannot balance both. I listen to women, I work in a profession that is made up of mostly women, and I listen to women who come back from maternity leave every single time they pine and wish that they were at home with their children. Even the most godless people that I work around who have the filthiest minds and mouths that you can imagine feel the same way because there's something innate that God has created in women to serve in this way, okay? Something, now that doesn't, doesn't mean that if the man is sick, disabled, or something like that, that the woman cannot work outside of the home. But it does mean that as a general rule, women who stay at home and manage their home are being obedient to God in that way, as a general rule. Okay, Proverbs chapter 31. Because you may ask yourself as a, as a female, what does managing the household look like? Well, Proverbs chapter 31, thankfully the Bible gives us those things. Proverbs chapter 31, an excellent wife, starting in verse 10 and through the end of the chapter, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She clothes her household. She provides food for her household. Do you see the, these things here? This is what is being related. She considers a field and buy it. I'm sorry. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's not a woman given to anxious fretting in that way. Okay? This is what it looks like to have an established and good household. Men lead their households. Women help in the household, right? We leave behind the sins that are typical of men and women, which the Bible plainly says, okay, plainly teaches, and we seek to live out this purposeful life. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her, house, for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. I want you to notice how that correlates with how Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 said we are to look and evaluate widows as to whether or not the church would have them, help them. All of that is included in this. He's merely pulling from the principles that are established in the Old Testament. This should be an encouragement to us that it is possible to live this way. It is possible to be a man who is spiritually strong and knows the Word of God and can teach your family. There are so many tools available to you today. So many tools available to you today. It is possible to live against the cultural tide as a woman, okay, and stay home and raise children faithfully according to the Word of God. It is possible to do that. There are certain commitments that you will have to make as a family. You may have to desire less material goods, but those material things will be supplanted in much greater, much, much greater wealth by the spiritual good that you will reap in the life of your children. 
How does God promise of that? Well, how do we know that we should look at it this way, that we should look at fruitfulness in marriage as a good thing? Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. You'll never find a single verse in all of the scripture that speaks of children as a material burden or in a negative way. There's no such thing in scripture. Psalm 128, verses 1 through 4. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. You hear that? There's a material blessing for a spiritual pursuit. This is for the man here. What is it? You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife, this is how you know it's the man that he's talking to in verses 1 and 2. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall man be blessed who fears the Lord. This is not a prosperity gospel message. We all know that God blesses faithfulness in a, as a general rule. We reap what we sow in life. The scriptures teach that over and over and over again. No, we do not hold God up to a standard that he must bless us, but we are faithful and obedient in the spirit of God, knowing and believing that he will bless us. And if he withholds his hand, it's for our good. Okay, if we withhold it, but that doesn't mean we can't live with respect to this. Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 through 28. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your, sir, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Psalm 103, verses 17 through 18, just to give us some perspective on what that means for your descendants to be established before you. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. You may disagree with particular types of theology regarding how they would view these passages. It's not a one-to-one -one blessing, as though you put in a quarter and you get out a child. That's what I said earlier, and I want to reiterate that. However, God clearly throughout history and clearly throughout the scriptures in terms of how he theologically deals with children blesses the children of parents who are faithful to him. Okay? clearly promises that in the scriptures. And that has not been abrogated. Not been abrogated. Let me read uh, to you from here, from the Westminster Standards. The reason I want to read this is because this kind of explains how things used to be looked at, okay, in terms of family piety. That's what we're going to talk about right now, okay? We've, we seek to be faithful. Obviously, um, in service of the home. That doesn't mean that men can't cook or can't help with the household. And in spiritual leadership and material provision of the home, it doesn't mean that there's zero place, obviously, for women to spiritually help in the home, okay? But I want you to think about this as men especially as we read these words, 
Okay, the first concerns, this is Thomas Manton in his preface, okay, to the Westminster Standards. Thomas Manton in his preface to the Westminster Standards, he says this, The first concerns heads of families in respect of themselves, that as the Lord has set them in place above the rest of their family, as a covenant head, Ephesians 5 clearly teaches this, they, it says, they would labor in all wisdom and spiritual understanding to be above them also. That means that you should be out in front, clearing the path for your family in this world, spiritually speaking. You should be the one treading through the hard ground in the mud, clearing the path for your family. Just as the Lord cleared the path of the Red Sea as he led the Israelites through there, so are you as a man called to do that. Okay, So are you as a man called to do that? It is an uncomely sight, he says, to behold men in years, babes in knowledge. And how unmeet are they to instruct others who need themselves to be taught, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, Hebrews 5.12. Knowledge is an accomplishment so desirable that the devils themselves knew not a more taking bait by which to tempt our first parents than by the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Solomon had that favor, he knew no... I'm sorry, when Solomon had that favor showed him of the Lord that he was made his own chooser what to ask, he knew no greater mercy than to beg wisdom. The understanding is the guide and the pilot of the whole man. That that faculty which sits at the stern of the soul. He goes on to say in the second part here, Our second advice concerns heads of families, in respects of their families. Whatever hath been said already, though it concerns every private Christian that hath a soul to look after, yet upon a double account it concerns parents and masters, as having themselves... And others to look after. Some there are who, because of their ignorance, cannot. Others, because of their sluggishness, will not mind this duty. To the former, we propound the method of Joshua, who first began with himself. As for me and my house, you remember what he says? And then is careful of his family. To the latter, we shall only hint what a dreadful meeting those parents and masters must have at that great day with their children and servants, when all that were under their inspection shall not only accuse them, but charge, but charge their eternal miscarrying upon their score. This is how people used to look at this. I'm going to read a little bit more here. In the back, it has actually a directory for family worship that tells you what your responsibilities should be and are. It says, besides the public worship in congregations mercifully established in this land in great purity, it is expedient and necessary that secret worship of each person alone and private worship of families be pressed and set up, that, with national reformation, the profession and power of godliness, both personal and domestic, be advanced. And notice the implications that they recognize in personal piety and family piety that they will have a national and domestic effect okay, on the country. It says, And first, for secret worship, it is most necessary that everyone apart and by themselves be given to prayer and meditation, 
the unspeakable benefit whereof is best known to them that are most exercised therein. That was what we talked about with individual piety, if you remember correctly, that we give ourselves over to the word and prayer. And we give ourselves over to the word and prayer. In the second paragraph back here, it says, The ordinary duties comprehended under the exercise of piety, which should be in families, when they are convened to that effect are these. First, prayer and praises be performed with a special uh, reference, as well as to public condition of the church of God and this kingdom. So pray for your church and the kingdom that you reside in, i.e. the United States for us. As to the present case of the family and every member thereof. Okay, so what's going on with the family and then individual things that we need to pray for. Next, reading of the scriptures. With catechizing in a plain way, that the understanding of the simpler may be better enabled to profit under the public ordinances, and they may more capable to understand the scriptures when they are read. That's the duty of every parent, and we could establish that from Scripture, and I think we have to a degree. Okay? It's the duty of every parent. It says, The head of the family is to take care that none of the family withdraw himself from any part of family worship. And seeing the ordinary performance of all the parts of family worship belongeth properly to the head of the family, the minister is to stir up such as that are lazy and train up such that are weak to a fitness to these exercises. So it's a responsibility. There used to be uh, a requirement that as the elders of the church would go around to particular houses, they would make sure that the men of the home were actually leading in these things. And if they weren't, they would ultimately, after much training and admonition and help, discipline them as disobedient to God and bar them from the Lord's Supper. Okay? That is, that is the way and the weight which God's word lays on these responsibilities. It's not, I want to encourage you to, to do this with everything in my being, but it is not a negotiable thing. It is disobedience to God to deny this responsibility in all of us. That doesn't mean that we don't have room to grow. I certainly do. Um, I certainly do. My, the way that I've led my family over time has changed drastically. Okay, It's changed drastically as I've been informed of Historical practices, which I wasn't aware of with, that were there, this, okay? And things that just aren't taught anymore. And God has grown us greatly because of that. All right, now church piety. Church piety. What are two things in the church that must be true of the church to help their members grow and to um, have an effect in, uh, on the culture at large? How would this happen? The first thing is gospel preaching and keeping the ordinances of God. Gospel preaching and keeping the ordinance of God. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So this is the first commission of the church. Preach the gospel, disciple, which involves teaching, teaching all of the truth, right, of the scriptures. How do we live obedient lives? And then what else? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, we would also add to that that churches are required to partake in the Lord's Supper. It's not included in this verse, but it's taught elsewhere. Yes? So that's the first thing. 
The second thing, which is the more neglected thing in churches, generally speaking. Have you guys ever wondered why? Maybe you've, had, maybe you've been or seen a church on TV and you, they've had a, something silly, like a clown show or something to mimic the gospel or puppets. I've actually been, seen puppets on stage before um, to illustrate a thing. And it just doesn't sit right with you. Maybe they have a trapeze act or, or someone up there to, uh, as one, I heard one pastor put it, mime the gospel or something like that as a, as a sermon illustration. It just doesn't sit right with you. What about heavy metal? Would you be okay with like a heavy metal band up here thrashing and that sort of thing as you worship God? Well, how or in what way could we actually say that's wrong as Christians? Well, I want to introduce you to a concept that I'm not going to have a full time to explain that's known as the regulative principle of worship. It's contained in both the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. It's the exact same paragraph minus two words as it is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it reads like this. It says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and therefore is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all heart and all the soul and with all the might But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God, and this is the key phrase, is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan. And listen to this last phrase, phrase, under any or under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So what does that mean? It means if God did not command it, it is forbidden. If you go to a church service and God did not command it, that particular exercise in that church service is forbidden. Well, do we see this actually played out in Scripture? The other, that's called the regulative principle. The other principle is called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle says whatever is not forbidden is okay with God. Now ask yourself, if you took that stance, which uh, churches such as um, the Anglican Church take, the Lutheran Church in Essentials take, how would you stop people from getting up here and playing heavy metal, playing heavy metal to the worship and all these other sorts of things? You have no biblical basis to do that. So God institutes and tells us what should be done in His services. Westminster Larger Catechism, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you some scriptures for this because this is probably a new concept. It was new to me about eight to ten months ago, maybe a year ago, and I, I've come to believe that it's a biblical concept. Westminster Larger Catechism 109, what sins are forbidden in the second commandment? Remember, the first commandment tells us who to worship, God and God alone. The second commandment tells us how to worship. Okay? We shall not make graven images, and the regulative principle is an implication of that says, what the sins forbidden in the second commandment are, all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving, any religious worship not instituted by God himself. goes on to say, also that we are to leave alone these things, the corrupting of the worship of God, we are to leave alone adding to it or taking from it, anything in his word, whether invented or taken up of ourselves or received by the tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense. 
Now, if you think about what the scriptures teach, you will recognize that thing. You will recognize those things there. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32 says this. This is an application, and I'm going to show you from the New Testament too, but we're going to give a couple Old Testament examples of this. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32 says this. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed for yourself that you are not instead to follow after them after they are destroyed from before you, that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Notice it wasn't just that they would serve a god that's not God. It's how they served those gods. Don't inquire after the way in which they did it. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination. It says, oh, I'm sorry. It says, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. I also will do likewise. This is what God's condemning. He says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. They burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. But listen, this is the key verse. It's verse 32 in Deuteronomy chapter 12. It says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Don't add to it, don't reduce it. Do exactly what I say. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. We see this played out with Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. He says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. This is the explanation, a non-adherence to this is the explanation of why we have such all-over-the-place worship in churches. A lack of recognition of this. Now, there are differences in the application of this principle within conservative churches, but Baptists and Presbyterians have historically identified this as a biblical teaching. Now, you're like, okay, that sounds legalistic. Well, what is legalism? Legalism is adding to or taking away from the Word of God. Think about the way that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 or Matthew chapter 15. You take the commandment of God and you add men's traditions to it, thereby negating the commandment of God. Thereby negating the commandment of God. Obedience to God, think of it this way, it sounds suffocating to limit what, the way that you worship, but we don't say that about sexual ethics as Christians, do we? We don't say that it's suffocating or that it's legalism to say that sex should be confined to one particular thing, and that's marriage between a biological male and a biological female. Why is worship different? Why is worship different if God has said it? Now, does that happen in the Old Testament only? Well, let's think for a second, legitimately think about it in relation to this principle, because maybe many of you never have, about the Lord's Supper and the warnings attached to the Lord's Supper. Why are they there? They're there because of this principle. What does it say? It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats without, or who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. God takes his worship and the institution of those things seriously. 
though not exactly the same, we can also think of Ananias and Sapphira. They brought an offering to the Lord in the gathered body. They lied to the Holy Spirit in that way, and they were struck dead. It's not exactly the same circumstance. I will grant you that. But we see this, pre- uh, this illustration here, this principle. The last thing, cultural piety. I know I'm going fast here, but I want you to stay with me, okay? So the church has to be a gospel-preaching church, but they also have to worship God in the way that he is prescribed. It is not legalism to obey God. It is legalism to believe that you can be justified by obedience to God and or adding to or taking away from the Word of God. Okay? Westminster Confession, chapter 19. I'm just going to read a couple snippets. This is the chapter on God's law that I handed out at the beginning of this study. So now we're here. We're full circle. Okay? We're full circle. We, if we live positively according to the obedience of God as individuals, as families, as churchmen, then our culture will change. And how does that happen? The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, ever, doth ever bind as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. That's uh, paragraph four, five, I'm sorry. Paragraph six. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to thereby be justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. So the law, you cannot legislate righteousness. True righteousness. Ju- righteousness that justifies the sinner. You can't do that. But, you, but the law has multiple uses. The law has a use of restraining evil. It has a loose of restraining evil. Okay, we need to recognize that. It says, neither are the aforementioned, this is paragraph 7, I'm trying to hurry because I'm running out of time. Now, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. So we can use it as a restraint. We can use it, we understand it to be a tutor, which brings us to the salvation of the Lord by pointing out our sins, and that for the, in the life of a believer, we understand it to be a sanctifying, gracious thing to us in that way, okay? That God calls us to obedience to those things. Remember, it says in the New Testament that to love Christ is to obey his commandments. Justification can only be had by faith, but that does not excuse obedience for those who have faith. Okay, think about these things. We cannot legislate true righteousness. The law, laws being changed serve as a restraint, one that we should strive for, but long-term godly growth in the society comes from transformed hearts, which not only seek to obey God's law by threat of the sword, but because the love of Christ has been poured out on us by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's obedience. Okay, we cannot legislate those things. The great thing regarding the promises of Scripture is that God promises His kingdom to have an influence upon all the earth. So regardless of your eschatological position, the way that you believe about the end times, we can agree on these things. It says in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten to you. And this is what He says to Jesus, the Father to Christ says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isaiah, 
Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. We're almost there, guys. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All this has happened in Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 through 7. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, for as they are glad to divide the spoil. It goes on to say, For unto us, in verse 6, I'm just going to skip down, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And listen to this, And the government shall be up on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Now this is quoted. This is quoted in Matthew. The two most quoted books in the New Testament are Psalms and Isaiah are the Psalms in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. We've got two more pieces here. It's my last day here in the church, so you guys are going to have to put up with me to the last second. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Listen. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands await for his law. I'll stop there so I can go over to the last one. God is faithful. These passages, I hope, give you, I hope, give you hope. God is faithful. He will bring forth what he desires. Psalm 22, a psalm about Christ, which talks about his crucifixion, ends this way. It says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Listen to this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall, all, shall bow all who go down to dust, and the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That is what changes a culture. That is what changes a culture. The promises of God in that way. Do you think that Christ is not ruling over the nations? Live in the way that he has called you. You can do it. If you fail, plead his forgiveness. He will forgive you. His mercy is sure. His mercy is sure. Get back up and try again in the power of Christ. Get back up and try again in the power of Christ. So I just wanted to say this is our last Sunday here. Uh, we've been here seven years. 
and we're going to greatly miss you guys. It's a hard Sunday for us in that way. Uh, We are not sure what we're doing yet, but I would ask that you guys would pray for us as we consider how to move forward in our future. And uh, I just hope that as our time here that you understand that like nothing that I've ever done or taught has been without the desire for you to grow in Christ. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask me as always. Um, Or if you want to contact me or want my information for long term or anything like that, please feel free to contact me. We love you guys. Let me pray for us and then um, I'll quit holding up the service. Okay. (laughs) Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the opportunity to come here today. And thank you for the opportunity to worship with this family. Lord, um, we know that we will see each other again, even if we don't on this earth. And God, we we rest in your promises and know that you are faithful to us in every way possible. I pray that we would live lives against social justice that aren't just negative and in tearing it down. I pray that we would discredit it with our words and show how it's faulty. But I also pray, God, that we would be obedient to your word and live a positive example because we as Christians can build through your grace the kingdom of God here on earth. Through your grace and by your mercy, Lord, we plead it in Jesus' name. Amen.